0: Now, let's suppose that you're the great American composer, the voice of American music, Aaron Copland. You've just written Appalachian Spring, and the great jazz clarinetist, Benny Goodman, asks you for a concerto. You might just let yourself think back to that lovely tune you heard in a Brazilian nightclub, and then you might let your composer's imagination play with it. Northern Symphonia leader Bradley Creswick, conducted by David Lockington with clarinet soloist Richard Stoltzman, playing a jazzy bit of Copeland's clarinet concerto. And in fact, he wrote this concerto in both South America and North America during 1947 and 1948. And after that, it took Benny Goodman two years to pluck up the courage to play it. And finally, he persuaded Fritz Reiner, the great conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, to uh, take it on, and it was first performed in 1950. Now that Brazilian tune is part of the fast second movement and you can hear how it appeals to the jazz idea by picking up on a a very common jazz device which we call the walking bass. And the walking bass means that's what it sounds like. The bass walks up and down the scale. Very often a chord is held above it and the bass will simply trudge or sometimes skip. Boom, 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 boom. walking bass, and you're going to hear them all the way through this clarinet concerto. To that walking bass and that Brazilian tune, Copeland's going to add several other ingredients, and the way that he decides to introduce them is in the soloist's cadenza, which comes in between the first movement and the second movement. So, Richard, yes. Richard welcome to the sage. It's a pleasure to be on the sage stage. <laughs> in the Cadenza. Aaron Copeland introduces some of his fingerprints, if you like, and one of those is the idea of a common chord, an arpeggio of a common chord. Almost the first idea you play in the cadenza is an arpeggio just up and down, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, very simple. Mm. Now, I know you've got a theory that this is the moment where the work changes its identity in some way.
1: That's right. That's why it's so neat to be a clarinet player because Copland built a bridge between the first movement and the second movement and between Western European traditional music, the waltz, and in-your-face jazzy American music. And he did that by taking the arpeggio and if you look at the music you'll see he puts lines under each one of the notes the first time he's done that then he starts to put accents on the notes then he ties them over to make them syncopated and the result is Mm You see what I mean?
0: So, Copeland's introduced this idea of jazzy syncopations, and he's also got a couple of little snatches of melody. There's one snatch of melody in the cadenza just based on a scale. <laughs> and then, finally, there's a spiky idea, which Copeland wants to be so spiky that uh, he writes his staccato marks not just as the usual dot, but as a wedge-shaped dagger. Yeah, so if the music just had dots, it would
1: sound like this. With the spikes, sounds like this.
0: and giving us a taste of what's to come. But let me tell you a little bit about Aaron Copland, first of all. His parents were Russian-Lithuanian Jews who emigrated into the United States in the 1870s, which was quite early. So they were very well established by the time their fifth child, Aaron Copland, was born in 1900. And he was born in Brooklyn, and he grew up listening to the sorts of music that he could uh, easily come across in Brooklyn, and eventually began to discover the classical side of things as well. He studied in Paris from 1921 with the famous teacher Nadia Boulanger, and already by that time he had decided that he wanted to make himself a consciously American composer. And the first way that he did that was that he used jazz. One of his early pieces, 1921, is actually called Jazzy. And when he went to Paris to study, he introduced that as his calling card. So jazz was present in Copland's music from a very early stage. Later on, he moved into other American ideas. He wrote a ballet called Billy the Kid, so he was interested in the Wild West. He was very keen on Mexico and South America, and there are pieces both for ballet and for orchestra based on South American ideas. The famous Appalachian Spring is quintessentially New England, and perhaps the most well-known aspect of his music is that uh, public aspect of Americana, the fanfare for the common man, He became very much the voice of American music. He wrote this clarinet concerto when he was in his late 40s, and so this is a mature and considered work. Now, we know there's a fast second movement. That suggests that there must be a slow first movement, and you can imagine Copland thinking how he might go about it. He's got the idea of walking basses, and he knows that the clarinet is good at beautiful melodies. And it so happens that Copland was always writing music for ballet and music for films which didn't get too much exposure and so he could reuse ideas and he happened to have a tune for a beautiful pas de deux as it were in his back pocket which can be accompanied by the walking bass and as we hear this very beautiful tune just now you'll hear the walking bass get underway bit by bit like a slow lazy wild west steam train first of all just two notes and then three notes and then finally like the little red engine I think I can I thought I could the Walking bass gets going, and this wonderful melody comes in, a melody like so many of Copeland's, which seems to me at any rate to suggest the vast blue skies of the prairies with every now and again a cloud. There's a, quite an unusual collection of instruments on the stage. And it might be interesting, before we move on to uh, the next section of the music, just to analyze quite closely how Copeland gets such a variety of sounds from these instruments. At the very beginning, there's a simple idea of that walking bass with a, a sort of limping hop-along Cassidy extra note added to it, which the harp plays throughout. And then the way that Copeland adds the strings to it is very varied. We just have the first 11 bars, so it's harp all the way through, and at the beginning, the basses with it on their own. Now add the cellos. Now basses drop out, and add viola. the violas drop out. Bring back the basses and the violas. So there's all those different changes of texture with one basic simple idea and just in 11 bars. Richard, what is it about Copland's music that seems to suggest big spaces and landscapes? Yeah,
1: I, I know. People always ask me that, and I think, first of all, uh, my mother loved the harp, and whenever I would play this concerto, "Oh, you're going to play that harp piece?" I said, "Mom, there's a clarinet in this too," you know. <laughs> but she loved the harp, and it's, it's a beautiful instrument. It's heavenly to look at, and it, it creates heavenly sounds, and the large intervals that the harp plays at the beginning are emulated by the clarinet, and this striving for something spiritually high induces in all of us, I think, a feeling of easy breath, relaxation, comfort, and something serene and almost immortal.
0: Copeland's really a master of harmony, and there's a lovely example in this first movement where the beautiful tune which is conjuring up these great uh, landscapes, it suddenly visits a, a darker moment, as if a cloud passes in front of the sun, when a strange note arrives in the bass. And the first time that this happens, Copland hovers and turns his back and takes us back to the home key, which happens to be C Major. The next time we hear that music, the cloud gets bigger and more beautiful, and Copeland picks up his own hint and takes that dark chord to the rich, warm key of E flat major this time. sort of simple song tune demands a movement that's got a simple shape overall. And so what Copeland found himself looking for at this point was what we might call, in the jazz idiom, a middle eight. He needs a contrasting middle section. And it so happens that he had just written a film score for a film that was never actually shown in the USA. And so he'd got a, a melodic idea that he could pick on that nobody knew back home. And He could just put it in here. But although I say just put it in, I don't want to make it sound as if he did anything random. He wrote about his compositional process. He said, uh, you you look around for ideas that seem to go together together. And when you've collected a number of ideas, you're thinking about them, and then one fine day, it suddenly occurs to you what never occurred to you before that these ideas seem to fit together in a way that you never suspected. And I think that uh, Copeland had this terrific instinctive understanding of musical structure. He was never much of a man for systems. Now, you'll hear that this little intermezzo tune from the film score also has a walking bass, but this walking bass goes up and then down again. There's a lovely composer's trick in the last section of that, the sort of thing that he would have learnt studying in Paris with Nadia Boulanger. He's stretched out his walking bass so that it uh, takes on a quite different shape. The basses are basically just playing da, 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 da. But by stretching the octaves, Copeland turns it into this. hear other points during the concerto where Copeland lets his composing sense of play run away with him. After this middle section, the first beautiful tune comes back and then there's a, a link between the first movement and the cadenza, which gives a, a chance to the harp to have a little solo, to shine, rather. Richard, that's really a very practical idea of Copeland's to save the soloist's lip, isn't it?
1: yeah that's great uh you know benny intimately worked on this piece with copeland and i think you know you play the slow movement it's pretty long it's longer than the fast movement you play pretty much all the time and you you know your chops just start to get sore after a while and uh, benny asked uh, copeland or maybe just said you know give me some break (laughs) so he turned it over to the harp Um, it's something that in the in the part it looks like it could be played on the clarinet but he says If the soloist prefers a respite, that's an English word which
0: means a break. (laughs) As in, give me a respite. Yeah, give me a break. Let's hear that now. and then you play your cadenza, and then the piano joins in to completely change the sound of the orchestra. There's a very uncharacteristic marking, from my experience of piano music anyway, the piano part at the beginning is marked wraith-like, so the piano is going to sound very ghostly, and in fact I think of this section not so much as a walking bass, but as a tiptoe bass. Now there, you hear Copeland picking up that little scale melody from the cadenza. And turn it into a rondo theme. And a rondo is where the same tune keeps coming back. And then in between each time we hear the tune, Copeland has to put in different ideas. And he's going to come up with all sorts of surprises. His first surprise, you'll hear in this next section we're going to play, is that that scale idea turns into a little waltz. So that scale from the cadenza turning into a little waltz there, a a dance movement incidentally that Copeland was very, very fond of. And now he's going to have fun with those common chords and arpeggios again from the cadenza. Benny Goodman enjoying that. Goodman was a a, a clarinetist with a remarkable range of interests and you probably know that he commissioned as well as commissioning this clarinet concerto from Aaron Copeland that we're discovering today he commissioned Bartok's contrasts. Richard do you think Benny Goodman's a, a good model for today with this idea of crossover? Benny I don't think wanted
1: to be a crossover anything he just wanted to be a very fine clarinetist. And, and and even when people called him the king of swing, he said, I'm not the king of swing. I just want to be an excellent clarinetist. When I went up to his penthouse in New York and met him, you know, I was very nervous, of course, meeting this great man. And I didn't know what we were going to discuss, but it was just like any other clarinet player. He said, well, well, what kind of reeds do you play? What's your mouthpiece? And it was really, it was nice. And then we got out some old Italian duets by Gabucci and Gambini and sat around and noodled. So it was really fun.
0: So far in the clarinet concerto, we've heard Aaron Copeland's tuneful side and we've heard his jazzy side. But now, for his next episode of his rondo, for the next bit in between the appearance of the tune that keeps coming back, we're going to have a little bit of formal composition, the sort of techniques that he would have studied with Boulanger. But even here, he's consciously American because you'll hear when he brings in some wonderful bell sounds that these bell sounds are hammering out the arch-American rhythm of Charleston, Charleston. heard how Copeland borrowed a Brazilian nightclub tune. And usually when he borrowed a tune, he treated it in a number of different ways. He didn't just keep his tune absolutely sacrosanct. Even in his folk song arrangements, which were commissioned from him by Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears, he used to alter the lengths of the interludes between the lines, even if he didn't alter the tune itself. He was always keen on change. And we've heard some of the things that he did when he was playing around with that Brazilian tune, but here is yet another way of dealing with it. How jazzy should you be playing this? Because some of these rhythms are written down yeah. quite straight.
1: Yeah, I know. That's a big, that was a big question. Uh, you know, the first recording was Copeland and Benny in early 50s, I think. And uh, I remember listening to that record and, and, and thinking, geez, Benny's playing very uh, carefully, you know, and very, very seriously. Some of the places, like that place I played with the bass, Copeland Marks, with humor. And, in fact, he says in a slap-based style. So I I called him. Believe it or not, you could call Copeland. He was was listed in in Poughkeepsie. He just called, it, and and he answered the phone. It was wild. And I was so nervous. I'm, 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 I'm. But... You know, and I, I said, I'm I, just a clarinet player. I have a question about. He said, just a minute. It was like a librarian. He said, I'll go get the score. He got the score. Brought it back. Opened it up. Now, what's the measure? You know, and I said, well, generally, uh, um, I heard you recording with Benny. You know, and it's great. But um, I, I just felt like you say with humor and rude and um, you know slap bass and all that. And he said, I just want you to play jazzy. Don't worry about Benny. Benny was trying to play as fine a clarinet as he knew how to play, and he was under the spotlight to do so. And, you know, he, he also, I think there's a, a place that Copeland had heard Benny play an extremely high note. He wrote that note into the piece of music, and when Benny saw it, he said, I can't play that. And Copeland said, sure, I, I heard it on one of your records. He said, oh, yeah, but I was just going for it. You know, if you write that note in a piece, that's all I'm going to think about the entire piece. So he changed it.
0: Out of that next bit of jazzy Brazilian tune, Caitlin decides that he's going to put in a bit more composing. And I don't know what you think, but this reminds me of Vivaldi's string writing. String crossing and bow work. Wonderful writing there. After that string section, the clarinet plays the tune again, uh, while the orchestra, incidentally, simultaneously plays the arpeggios up and down. It's one of those happy things that came to Copeland one fine day after he'd been thinking about them for long enough. And at the very end, the clarinetist plays an almost impossibly high note, followed by a grisando, just like the one in Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Richard, basically, it's a, it's a running pell-mell to the, to the ending, isn't it? Yeah, not, not ending...
1: too pell-mell, though. In fact, even uh, Copland wrote, not too fast.
0: <laughs> just how hard is this ending?
1: The, the very ending... Um, uh, you know, it's, what, like Benny said, at, at the end you've already played for like almost, you know, 15, 16 minutes, and it's like, oh, to heck with it, I'm just going to go for it. And, and it's hard, but it's so exhilarating, and everybody's bouncing around, and the whole audience is bouncing around. So you just, you just go for it. If you hit the note, fine. If you don't, there's a big glissando that saves the day. <laughs> you don't have to worry
0: well we'll know that we've got to be bouncing around and uh, enjoying the glissando and the high note when we hear the second movement in a minute but uh, before we get on to that uh, are there any questions this is the moment where you can ask questions and somebody with a microphone will appear
2: i just wondered whether copeland indicated how many strings he wanted in the orchestra you're playing with a chamber orchestra here is this what's traditionally done for this um, concerto or not
1: I think it, it depends on two things, the size of the hall and the budgetary constraints. <laughs> I like the small band feeling, you know, um, I, but I have played it with huge symphony orchestras. It's, it's, it's a little bit more grand, so there's quite a more of a contrast when you hear the slap bass and the piano playing. It really sounds like a, a little group within a large symphony, whereas this is more like everybody's cooking together.
2: When I heard the beginning of the slow movement, I was struck how much the atmosphere and feeling of it was like the beginning of the slow movement of the Ravel jazzy piano concerto. Is this, do you think, a merging of the French and American influences?
0: Well, I think you've put your finger on a very good analogy there between the Ravel slow movement and the opening of the slow part of Copeland's clarinet concerto. The mood at the opening is very much the same indeed, and it reminds us of the sorts of things that Copeland learned in Paris, that economy of notes, both the Ravel and the Copeland beginning with just two notes with a particular spacing. I think that's especially what they've got in common, has a special emotional feel, that sort of French refinement. And to think that within the space of a 17-minute work, Copeland is going to take us from that opening point of refined repose to the jazzy, glissando that it's going to end with. That's quite a range for a composer to display. So now, having discovered something about Aaron Copeland's clarinet concerto, we're going to hear a complete performance of it, the Northern Sinfonia, leader Bradley Creswick, conducted by David Lockington, with the clarinet soloist Richard Stoltzman.